good morning, everyone. I want you to turn in your scripture very quickly to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 2 through 6 here in just a moment. Allow me to just introduce myself for a second. I have the honor of serving as the customer service representative of Truett McConnell University. I uh, love doing it. I've done it for 15 years. Uh, my, my children have grown up on the campus. When we moved here uh, to the mountains of North Georgia, uh, they were five, three, and one. And so I've literally got to see them grow up. My son is a junior uh, forensic psychology major at the university. My daughter will be an incoming nursing major. And then my youngest is in high school doing dual enrollment with us. And so it is something that is deep and deeply woven within us and never thought we could ever do this. I am not qualified to be president of a university. My only qualification is I graduated in the top 10% of the bottom half of my class somewhere along the line, and so they thought it would be a good idea. And I love it. Uh, if you are a pessimist, because we just spend too much time on social media and clicking the internet and watching TV and everything else in between, you can easily become a pessimist because you think, my goodness, this world is quickly going in decline. And it is. However, God is using this generation just as powerfully as he is using past generations. So take note, take heart, and be an optimist. And if you ever just want to see it, just drive your way a few hours north here, north uh, east to the mountains of North Georgia, and see what the Lord's doing, calling out the cold. Uh, moving them into the marketplaces of business towards hospitals, education unit, and the mission field. We love it. We can't imagine doing anything differently. Uh, it is just one of the passions of life to see a new generation take the stage as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't deserve it because I'd never thought that I would be where I am in so many ways. See, my background may be a bit different than yours. We are an immigrant family to the United States. You can tell it by my name. My name, Amir Fetijanar, literally means the Prince of Islamic Conquest. So you can picture what my father had desired for me. My father, of course, being a devout Muslim all his life, my father is Turkish, my mother is Swedish, my wife is Czech. So we have a psychology department to which our kids will need at some point in time as they mix in that DNA because there's just too much chlorine in the gene pool, as you can imagine. And when my father and mother met, they met at the University of Stockholm. My father was studying to be a civil engineer, uh, and then they married. Now, to be married, my mother converted to become a Muslim. Now, to become a Muslim, all you have to do is do the Shahada, what's called the Creed of Islam. So all you have to do is say in Arabic, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. You're a Muslim. doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Uh, they'll call it paradise. But it means you're on the road. You're on what's called Sharia, on the path. So my mother converted too, my father did, and then after two children later, we immigrated here to the United States where we ultimately landed in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, that's where we grew up in Columbus, which means I am an Ohio State Buckeye fan. I know. It never gets applause because we're in the South. And, <laughs> and after all, it's not like we're a threat. Right? You have Crimson Tide, you have Bulldogs. I hear Georgia Tech's going to start an athletic program at some point, and <laughs> we're the Buckeyes. Does anybody know what a Buckeye is? It's a useless nut. We're the Ohio State useless nuts. That's not a threat to anybody, but we landed there, and, and my brothers are both born overseas, and I was born in the States. I was born in Marion, Ohio, which means I love to remind my brothers of that. Because of one singular thing, I can be president. <laughs> they can't, according to the U.S. Constitution. They can be governor of California if they want, can't be president of the United States. When we grew up in Ohio, my father set up shop. We did so for two reasons. One, the economic freedoms that America gives to so many. And secondly, to be Muslims and, and to make sure that there's a mosque set up there. And so my father was one of the leaders, what's called Nulima of the mosque, and wanted to raise his boys, of course, in like stead, to be devout Sunni Muslims. And that was his hope, his dream. And I am grateful that a youth would share Christ with me and never give up on me, ever. 
It, it was a point where he would invite me to this little church up in Columbus, Ohio, invite me to every little event this church had. He would invite me to things like a lock-in. If you don't know what a lock-in is, it is in the Bible. Just look under the word hell. <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was to say, here's, here's my great idea. Let's take teenagers in the middle of everything going on in their life, take them to church, lock the doors, turn out the lights, and see what happens. <laughs> Invited me to everything. And I am grateful. I am grateful for a man of God I still keep in contact with today who shared Christ. Because remember, in anything that you do, whatever religion you're trying to reach out to, whoever's down the road, whether an atheist, Muslim, Hindu, or anything in between, I always remind people when it comes to Muslims, it doesn't take someone who knows Muhammad well to win a Muslim to Jesus. It takes someone who knows Jesus well to win someone to Jesus. And so today, for the next few moments, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, and I just simply want to speak to you on the God who draws near, the God who is intimate. So read with me Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6 in what the Jewish people called a messianic deliverance passage. Isaiah 9 and verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And he says in verse 3, note the word joy. You have multiplied the nation and increased this joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. Men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The reason why, verse 4, for you have broken the yoke of his bird, the staff at his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor in the day of Midian, from every warrior's sandal, from the noisy battle, and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And then a pinnacle to this passage, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now this pause for a second, because we won't be able to get into that section for today. The government will be upon his shoulder as a reminder Think about the politicians that run this world right now. Not merely our nation, but across the world. They are fallen creatures. They sometimes are corrupt. They sometimes are tyrannical. But good news, one day the King of kings and the Lord of lords will rule this world. That is his promise from his word. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called. And here are four couplets, two words put together in the Hebrew language to announce the coming Messiah who would come 700 years after this announcement. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Ultimate question in life, who is Jesus? The good news, he's proven himself. He's proven himself by a perfect life. He's proven himself by a sacrificial death. He has proven himself by a victorious resurrection. So the ultimate question in life, who is Jesus, is not merely a propositional question of fact that's been proven, but now because of that is a personal question. Who is Jesus to you? Every person must answer that. As a Muslim, I had to answer that. You see, in Islam... Jesus is valued as one of the great prophets, mentioned in 93 verses of the Quran, called Ibn Miriam, the son of Mary, 23 times in the Quran. The Jesus of Islam to many people seems to be similar to the Jesus of Christianity, but he is not. The Jesus of Islam is the exact opposite of who Jesus truly is. If you had the honor of being raised in church, you had the honor of going to VBS, Things of this nature, you probably memorize somewhere along the way, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Listen to the exact opposite in the Quran, in chapter 112, in verse 3, he begets not, nor is he begotten, there's none like him. At some point along the way, you heard Jesus say to you from Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But chapter 35 and verse 18 of the Quran says, you must bear your own burdens. No one can bear them for you. See, I had to come into contention and then come to the understanding that the Jesus that I grew up with was a false Jesus. And because of that, for the first portion of my life, I worshiped a false God named Allah through a false prophet named Muhammad. 
through a false way of heaven or some way I can work my way there and appease the God of Islam. Until Jesus showed up to me. This Jesus. Picture going back 2,700 years. It's the time of Isaiah. They're yearning and longing for the time of the Messiah to come and they're reading this passage. It's actually two and a half chapters long and we just read the end of it. How would you know the coming Messiah? There'd be many false Christs. We all know that. There are many who claim to be that never were, never are, never will be. How would they know this coming Messiah? Well, this passage actually reveals it from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 7, here's a key to knowing that Jesus is who he claimed he is. He is born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Why so important? If he's not born of a virgin, he is not the Messiah. If he's not the Messiah, you're still in your sin. If you're in your sin, you have no hope. All coming out of the idea of the virgin birth. And the reason I tell you is the first time I heard someone deny the virgin birth was not when I was a Muslim. According to chapter 3 of the Quran, he's born of a virgin. But when I became a Christian, I ran into Christians, in particular liberal pastors and liberal professors, who would say something like this. Virgin birth is only mentioned a few times in the Bible, therefore it's not an important doctrine. To which I would then ask in my sophomoric mind, just being a believer for a few months, wait a minute, how many times does it have to be mentioned in the Bible for us to believe it? It seems once would be enough. The Jewish people know he must be born of a virgin. Jewish people know he will conquer, in particular, the spiritual realm, and then one day the political realm. The spiritual realm. Isaiah chapter 8, the Jewish people knew oppression, grave, deep, dark oppression. More than any other people group in the history of the world, the Jewish people have suffered more than any other group. Just consider from the time of Isaiah to the time of Jesus, how many groups conquered them, pillaged them, pained them, suffered upon them so many things. From this time, Assyrians, then Babylonians, then Medes, then Persians, then Greeks, then Romans, and on and on and on it went. But in the purpose and the plan of God, those suffering allowed by God would point them to the coming of the Messiah 700 years later. Now take a look at this text and note all of that darkness moves into an intensity of focus on Jesus Christ that those people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. That those who walked in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Note all of those difficulties in verse 3 turns into joy. Mentioned four times in the text, they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why? For you, speaking of our Lord, has broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in Dave Midian, from every warrior's sandal, that verse, that chapter 8, from that noisy battle, and the garments rolled in blood, oh, they knew it too well, will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And then after all of that, pulling towards an encouraging word, comes to the climax of the passage in verse 6. All the lights are turned out in a singular Light and focus is given on Jesus Christ, the only one who deserves it, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And who is he? He's the wonderful counselor. He's almighty God. He's everlasting Father. He's Prince of Peace. He's the wonderful counselor. Now, you and I sing wonderful as we did today. We know the word wonderful. If you wish to encourage someone, it's an adjective. You tell them they're a wonderful person or they've done a wonderful thing. That's how we use the word wonderful. But the authorial intent of how the scripture uses it is very important to your understanding of this text. The word wonderful in the Old Testament is only used of God himself. You will never find the word wonderful used of a mere mortal. In fact, at one point the Jewish people were about to go to war and they pause, they pray, and they say, but Lord, wh whom shall we say sent us? And the Lord says, tell your enemy, wonderful sent you. So understand when he says, you're the wonderful counselor. It is an announcement of Christ's deity. You might as well stamp it. When you hear Jesus Christ, the Messiah in Isaiah 9, you can call him God. But not merely God. The couplet says, wonderful counselor, God 
who speaks to you. Do you see how incredible that one couplet is? Every single person in life has two questions. Is there a God and does he speak? And in one fell swoop and in one couplet of one portion of one verse of one book talks about one person and the only person, the Lord and King, Jesus Christ, who is the wonderful counselor. He's the God who talks to you. But how would these Jewish people know this Jesus to come, this living word, unless they trust the written word? That's why our view of Scripture is so important. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He's the author of the Word of God, and the Word of God is perfect just like He is. That's why we say it is inerrant. There are no mistakes in the Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's absolutely perfect. We say it's infallible. It'll never lead you astray. When you have a struggle, a hardship in life, and you go to a friend or a pastor and you say, I need a word from God. Where do I need to look? Infallibility says, wherever you look, he's there. It'll never lead you astray. You can go to Genesis, you can go to Revelation, you go to Hosea, you can go to Hebrews, you can go from Leviticus to Luke, you can do whatever you wish, and I promise you, he's there. Crack open the pages. He's there. He'll speak to you. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. That's the beauty. He'll never lead you astray. Can I tell you as a former Muslim, the greatest danger of Islam the greatest danger of Islam is not jihad or mujahideen, holy war and holy wars. Those are important subjects, but the greatest danger of Islam is today two billion Muslims wake up and they're led astray by a false prophet. Much of my family led astray by false worship. And by the way, can I tell you what is the most dangerous thing in the world? It's not radical Islam. It's apathetic Christianity. It's a Christianity who knows the truth but won't speak the truth. But don't miss this. He says, wonderful counsel, not only the inerrancy and infallibility, watch this. This word, God's word, is God's love letter to you and me. This is his intimacy. This is how he speaks and he guides and he directs. Don't miss, because so many Americans, so many American Christians see this as a resource on the desk and not a treasure for the heart. It's intimate. I told you my wife was Czech. We met on a mission trip. My wife and I met in the January of 2000. I flew over to the Czech Republic, it used to be Czechoslovakia, and in that little country of 10 million people, most of whom are atheists, they don't believe in any form of God whatsoever anymore. In fact, over 90% of all youth are atheists in that country today. So we wanted to set up a, a church of sorts in the southernmost part on the Austrian border, and I'm waiting there. I'd never been there before. Of course, I don't speak Czech. And so I'm standing there, and I'm waiting for my translator, and she comes up. She's now my wife, by the way. And in biblical terms, when I saw her, she was hot. <laughs> so I lost it. I didn't know what to say. A preacher is supposed to always have words coming out of his mouth. I didn't know what to say. So I reverted back to my Turkish culture. I looked at her and said, how you doing? <laughs> we dated for one week and got married. One week. I didn't plan it. It's not a recommendation. Right? The, the goal of a mission trip is to win people to Jesus, not take them home. Didn't plan this. Now, you say, how did you know? Well, we didn't date on the mission trip. Right? Mission trip was a mission trip. I flew back home. In March, I went back over. We dated for a week, announced our engagement. Between that time that we met platonically and then dated, were six weeks. In that time, we started to know each other, long distance, writing to each other. I wrote my wife during those six weeks, 300 letters. She has them all. It, it, it's, it's, I want to know everything about her. I want to know when she was saved. I want to know what she thought about life, family, ministry, since I am in ministry. I want to know everything. I, ladies, I, I want to ask what were important questions to a man, but not that important to a woman. Radically important, though. What do you like to eat? It's not unimportant, gentlemen, is it? Swedish is my first language. English is my second language. Four most important words I've ever learned in English. All? 
you can eat. I just wanted to see if she'd sit down at the trough of Golden Corral and just hunker down and eat for a while. She had some questions for me. After all, my name means Prince of Islamic Conquest. She had some questions. Before I ever saw her again, I already knew I loved her. Before I saw her face to face, I knew I wanted to spend my life with her. And with our Lord. Do you not already know that you love him? Are you not certain that you will spend eternity with him? But how can you be so audacious? Because his love letter said so. Because we didn't first love him, he first loved us. And he gave himself to be a forgiveness, a propitiation for our sin. He's the wonderful counselor. Secondly, he's El Gabor. Almighty God, God the hero, God the heroic one. Picture the Jewish boy raised under this time of Isaiah, being trained by his father in the Hebrew Scriptures. The dad would take him through the entire Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets. He'd take him from the first verse all the way to Malachi. But the boy started to have questions, you see, because you'll go through Genesis 1 in creation, Genesis 2 creation, Genesis 3 the fall, Genesis 4, there is Cain killing Abel, it's also the first musician, Genesis 5 is Enoch walking with God, Genesis 6 is the flood, he walks through all 50 chapters of Genesis, he's learning the ways of the Lord, how God is holy and righteous and perfect, then he gets to Exodus, as he walks his way through the burning bush of Exodus 3 all the way to Exodus 20, there's a Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and picture being this young man. As this young man is learning about the holiness and purity of our Lord, and then he's lined up on these Ten Commandments. Top four, his relationship with God. Bottom six, his relationship with man. And he asks his father, Dad, just stop reading. I can't do this. I've broken that commandment. I've broken that commandment. I've broken that commandment. I've broken that commandment. There's no hope for me. And the dad said, just hang on, son. I want you to go to one other verse. It's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. I want you to see these words, El Gabor. And the son quickly reacts, I know those words, dad. I've studied them over and over again. I know the word El means God. I get it, dad. I know the word Gabor. It means military hero. We talk about these military heroes up to this point. Dad, I get it. El Gabor, military hero in God. And dad just pauses and said, son, but you're missing one thing. These two words are not separate. They're together. Our Savior is El Gabor. Our Savior is God, our hero. Son, what you're missing is that the Lord did not come to make a bad man good. Our Savior is coming to make a dead man alive. That little boy, 2,700 years ago, says, I get it, Dad. And he surrenders his life to Christ. You see, the same thing that Jewish boy needed, this Muslim boy needed. And I was invited to this revival meeting in a small little church up in Columbus, Ohio. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what a Baptist or a Southern Baptist was. Now, I'm a Yankee from the North. I was learning as I watched, and Southern Baptists had a reputation. You're the people who handle snakes and eat squirrels. That's what we knew at that point within Yankee land. And I walked into that church, and I was terrified. Now, I wasn't terrified because I was a Muslim. I was comfortable who I was. I knew how my father raised me. But I was terrified because it was the awkward teenage years. Do you remember your teenage years? I'd rather forget my teenage years. I went to a public school of about 2,000 students. I wasn't a nerd. I was the nerd in my school. I promise you, I was geeky and scrawny and lanky. I was going towards six foot tall, barely 100 pounds, right? I was a kid who could turn to the side, stick out my tongue, look like a zipper. I was that kid. I was a kid who I thought, okay, I, I'm going to be good. At, I'm, I'm going to play a sport. I never was invited ever to play on a team sport, ever. Ever. I tried it. I tried golf. I figured a Muslim would be good out of the sand. I couldn't make golf team. I tried everything. 
I had a lot of friends. All the friends had the same first name, imaginary. <laughs> I was that kid. You know the students. If you're in the public school system or even private schools, you'll know this. I was that kid. I was the kid in the corner. Just don't notice me. Don't mention my name. Don't look me in the eye. And certainly don't call me out. That was my whole goal in life, is to go unnoticed. And then someone invites me to church, and my mindset was, they're going to treat me the same way in here as they treat me out there. But they didn't. First time in my life, I saw and heard the unconditional love of God. Unconditional. Remember, the great chasm between every other religion in the world and Christ is unconditional love. A love without caveats and a love without conditions. In Islam, here's what I was taught in chapter 2 of the Quran. Allah loves those who do righteous deeds. Do you hear it? He'll love you if you show yourself. If you give the effort. If you do enough. If, if, if. Unconditional love is Romans 5 love. Romans 5 love is God manifests, demonstrates his love towards us. That while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I not only heard it from the preacher, I saw it from the people. I walked in the back door and older ladies were there who said things I had never heard before. Let me hug your neck. Never been said in a mosque, I promise you, <laughs> ever. Youth who would sit on the front row would pull me into those front rows where I didn't want to be, sit beside me and say, come on, you're sitting with us. And what I learned about those youth was who they were on Sunday, they were on Monday. First time in my life I ever had friends. And if you think the people of this type of church are unique, oh my goodness, the pastor. My pastor was an ex-moonshiner from the hills of Kentucky. <laughs> he looked the part of an old-fashioned preacher. Do you know what I mean? For those older in here, you'll know this. He wore a leisure suit, green with red stitching. He wore half zip-up boots with white tube socks on. And he didn't say you had to be born again. No, he said you had to be born again. I didn't know there was a T at the end of that word until I'd met him. He was married, he was in the military, served in Korea, stationed in Tokyo, met his Japanese wife who was a Buddhist. She gets saved, he gets saved, he gets called to ministry. So in that church, she loved to pray. Sunday evenings we hear Yukiko pray. We didn't have a clue what she was saying because of her broken English. After, oh heaven de fada, it was anybody's guess what was going on on a Sunday night. And God puts three Muslim boys, my brothers and I, I'm the youngest, and within a year of each other, all of us come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he asked us, what do you think of Jesus? So we, we respect Jesus. He reminded us, Jesus declared himself God. You can't respect someone who declared himself God. You only have two options. Worship him or walk away. But no man or woman, regardless of religion, can simply say they respect a man who declared himself God. Worship him or walk away. I went forward that evening during a gospel invitation, placed my faith in Lord Jesus Christ, and everything changed. For the first time in my life, I got to worship the one true living God. Got up off my knees, went home, exhilarated, ready to tell my whole family, told my mother. Now, my mother had become disgruntled with religion by this time, and so I told her, Mom, I've been saved. I've been born again. I'm trying to use words that I'm learning, that I'm getting, and she's not excited because she's lost. She just told me, do your homework and go to bed. Okay. And I told more and more, more and more Swedish for Grandma. More and more is what in philosophical terms you'd call a pluralist. More and more took all religions and put it in a melting pot of theology. So grandma talked a little bit of Christianity. 
a little bit of Islam and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of Buddhism. She blended this all together in this religious soup. That's what she thought was truth. And I'll never forget witnessing a grandma and saying, Grandma, don't you believe Jesus died for you? She said, oh, I absolutely believe Jesus died for me, and when I'm reincarnated, I'll understand more. That's grandma. But where I learned a third personal attribute of our Lord, that he is everlasting Father, is when I had to tell my own daddy. You know the highest sin in Islam is what's called shirk in Arabic. It means you cannot partner anything or anyone with God. And so when Peter says in Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, according to Jesus, he is blessed and the church will be built on that confession of the person of Christ. But according to Islam, Peter would be sent to the lowest levels of hell. So when I hear the word father, the reaction that is in my mind from years past to now present is, as a Muslim, I would have never dared, never dared to call him father. That would assume that he has a son that would send me to hell, never call him father. But today, I have the privilege of calling God my father. Everlasting is a beautiful term. It's a term that should invigorate your faith because when you come to faith in Christ, remember, there is never an orphan in the house of God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in John chapter 10, he says in John chapter 10 and verse 28, no one will snatch you out of my hand. John chapter 10 verse 29, right after it, and no one will snatch you out of my Father's hand. The Apostle Paul would put it this way, that he, the Holy Spirit, the third person of this triune God, is your seal to the day of redemption. Do you see the overwhelming power of God in your life? is that He will never, ever, ever let you go. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will grip you in your hand, and when you think you let go and you do, He won't. And no wonder Paul would say that He, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it. It is a promise of God in your life that you can claim. And I needed it. Because I sat down with my father. He wanted me to pray to Allah. And I couldn't. But how do you tell your dad? My dad's my hero. My dad's one I want to look like and speak like and act like and be like. How do you tell him? You don't. You won't. Only when the power of God takes over a situation can you ever overcome the feebleness of our own strength. I trembled and looked up to my father and said, Dad, I can't do this. Of course, he asked why. I told him I became a believer. He said, you choose this day between that new religion of yours and me. Never regret it. That day was a good day. It's a good day for three reasons. One, any day you obey Christ, regardless of the consequences, is a good day. And I got to share Christ with my father once. And I'd rather share Christ with my father once and lost him than never share Jesus at all and kept him. And I got my father's little Chevy Chevette, drove off to my mother's home, and God spoke. Straight from the epistle to the Hebrews, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And those encouraging words not only gave me reason to live, It allowed me to thrive in my faith, grow in my faith, mature in my faith, so that five years later, I heard a different call, and it's a call I didn't want. It's a call that I rejected out of hand very quickly for months. It was a call to preach. I didn't want to be a preacher. Preachers lose their hair. (laughs) Right? This isn't a plan. I never said, looking in the mirror, you know, I'd really like to look like the love child between Mr. Clean and a Saudi woman. Never said that. (laughs) I didn't want to be a preacher. You know why? I'm the recluse. I can't look anybody in the eye. And God said, you preach. And I told the Lord two things that day. One, God, you are sovereign. And two, God, you are wrong. It was a bad day. And I learned a valuable lesson in life. You cannot be joyful in this life if you're not obedient in this life. 
So after months of struggling, months of struggling, I came forward. Pastor Clarence was still there. Same man who led me to Christ. Same man who baptized me. There I was again. Pastor Clarence, I'm called to preach. I said, I know. Now, Pastor Clarence would do this. We, we were a church of about 80 people. We called out more than a dozen ministers of the gospel. I knew what he was going to do, and I was so terrified. He turned me around, put his arm around me, looked over the auditorium of people and said, Brother Emar, best he can get my name, Brother Emar has been called to preach, and I hope you'll come back tonight to hear him preach. <laughs> if you want to know what the real words of a terrorist is, that's it right there. I went home, and I am telling you, I can still remember it to this day. I, I sweated out Scripture. I tried to do my best. I came back. I had a message. My message was Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. <laughs> it was the worst sermon in the history of Christianity. Can I tell you what I thank God for? No YouTube. You can't ever hear it. You can't ever, pre it, was, it was awful. Heretics did much better job with the Bible than I, it was awful. And you know you've had a bad sermon. Here's how you know you had a bad sermon back then. In the back, you always shake people's hands as you're leaving. Older ladies come up to you. They've been saved for decades. They're not lying against a holy God on a bad sermon. They've heard enough of them. So they come up to you. They reach out their hand and they say, well, bless your heart. <laughs> Which means, from Greek, I don't know why I showed up, but bless your heart. And I heard it a hundred times. There were 30 people there. I knew I needed to be mentored and discipled, educated, and God calls me to Texas from Ohio. I didn't want to go to Texas. Has anybody ever lived in Texas? Do you know how flat Texas is? So flat, you can watch your dog run away for three days. That's Texas. It's, it's a weird place. It's like at the end of the sixth day, God went, eh, Texas. That's it. But I had learned how to obey. I learned I had need to get joy. So I resigned where I was a youth director. And right before I left, right before I left, just a few weeks before I left, my mother walks the aisle and places her faith in Jesus. I could have floated down to Texas. Finished up my education in time. And I am a professor at a seminary. The second day I am a professor, I get a call from one of my brothers that says my father is dying of prostate cancer but he wants to see me. I never thought that could happen. I hadn't seen my father, my father's face for over a decade. And he wanted to see me. As quickly as I could, I drove up to his home in Columbus. I'll never forget standing on his doorstep there in Bristol Road. I'll never forget as he walked up and uh, his body was just emaciated with cancer. He opens up the screen door, and we hugged, and we kissed, and we reconciled. Remember, you can do things in your time and in your way, and you'll get what your strength gives you. Or you can do things in God's time, in His way, and you'll get what His strength gives you. I walked in. My father sat all five children down. I have two sisters that are still Muslim to this day. He handed me a Quran the holy book, hoping I would revert back to Islam. I was hoping to share Jesus with him. That was my singular purpose of being there. He wouldn't let the name of Jesus be mentioned. He wouldn't let a Bible in his home. And he dies four days later. What do you do in the most difficult times of life? Oh, Scripture answers that with the last couplet. He's the Prince of Peace. Consider the struggles, the pains, the difficulties the Jewish nation had. And the last couple, it was a reminder of Psalm 23, that he'll carry you through the valley and bring you back to the mountaintop. And the way the Prince of Peace is mentioned is, he's coming one day for you. Remember, you and I are sojourners through this world. We are pilgrims passing through. This is not our home.
and the Prince of Peace, that promise that was given to the Jewish people to which we were grafted in that He is coming, is now a promise He's coming back for you and for me, for believers in Christ. He loves you that dearly, and if He loves you that dearly, He'll carry you through any difficulty you're carrying on your shoulders today. He'll take them off of your shoulders and on His shoulders. He'll hold you up, prop you up, and bring you back to the mountaintop in His power, His grace, His mercy. And He did in my life. The same year I buried my father, I buried my grandmother. She's a different story. She was 80 years old when I was born again. She went through the typical maladies of life, of heart attacks and strokes. She was living in a nursing home in Chicago while I was a seminary student in North Carolina. And God spoke to me and simply said, you take care of her. I knew what it meant. I knew it was right from Scripture. But I thought, Lord, are you sure? I mean, my grandmother is a city slicker to the nth degree. The only place she ever knew was city. Stockholm, Sweden, Columbus, Ohio, Chicago. That's it. That's, uh, I live in the country. Now listen, I lived in a weird place that is an unincorporated little town called Wood, North Carolina, where my brother and I pastored there together. The entire population of the town was 118 people. I knew it exactly because I was the youth pastor of the only church in the town, and when someone got pregnant, I changed the sign. It was a small town made up of unique people. They were weird. They were not merely southern, they were country. Do you know the difference? If you run into a woman who's a southern belle versus running into a woman as a country girl, be careful. A southern belle will cry. A country girl will kill you. We were in the country, and the Lord said, this is where I want more and more. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. This isn't my grandmother. I can't picture this, but Lord, you've been faithful even when I'm not. But just one thing, I, these people have weird habits. They do things called pig pickings. I'd never heard of a pig picking. If you don't know what a pig picking is, it's self-explanatory. Usually deacons of a church will roast a pig overnight. And as you're preaching in the morning, they're roasting the pig, which is unfair, by the way. You can smell food as they're preaching. That's rude. They roast this pig, then you go out back after the sermon and you eat. So I went out back. I said, Lord, are you sure? I'm looking at this pig. Pig's looking back at me. Thanks for warning me about that. But this is where you want grandma. Just, just one thing, Lord. She doesn't speak English. They barely speak English in Wood, North Carolina. But have you ever heard the Lord just say, trust me? And his voice gives you an assurance. It did. I moved her down. And those sweet, godly people. A year later, after them loving on her with an unconditional love, my grandmother, 92 years old, as I was walking out to go teach youth on a Wednesday night, stopped me. After a thousand times that I had witnessed to her, she stopped me and she said, I've got to know the same Jesus you know. Age of 92, she's saved, born again. We are so excited. In Baptist life, what's next? Baptism, right? It's very important. Hold them down till they bubble, right? This is a radically important time where you symbolize the salvation that's been given through Christ. You're announcing it to the world. Let's do this. And in the country, we did it publicly. That is, you have a country church and a city church. How do you know the difference? City church, inside. Country church, outside. Our deacons used to call it the living waters. We'd walk into a pond, and they'd slap sticks on top of the water. Right? You know what they're doing? They're removing anything that's dangerous or poisonous. Snakes, snapping turtles, other deacons, whatever's there, they're removing. And it's November. I can't do this to more and more. Don't own a portable defibrillator. We're waiting. God calls me back to Texas. Second Sunday I am their pastor. At the Friendship Baptist Church, I get to baptize my hero. A day I'll never forget. 
standing in the baptistry, this time inside. I've dreamed of this day for 15 years. I've prayed for this day for 15 years, and here it is. I can't believe it. Grandma is saved, and she wants to announce it to the world. So I'm standing there in the baptistry, and I'm six foot something. She's four foot nothing, right? And I, I, I'm, I, it's overwhelming. I am bawling. So I'm, I'm looking like a girl. She's looking at me like a guy, but we're ready to get this on. And to make it meaningful to her, the way to do it is to baptize her in her heart language of Swedish. No problem. My heart language, her language. But that is something you should tell your deacons before you do. You want to see the quickest deacons meeting you ever had in a Baptist church, you speak in tongues in the baptistry and you see what happens to you. <laughs> it gets worse. I drop this feeble, frail, 92-year-old woman in the water. She jumps up out of the water, turns to the congregation, and starts jigging. She's gyrating hips back and forth. I've got a dancing Pentecostal in the Holy of Holies, the baptistry of a Baptist church. The second Sunday, I'm their pastor. And all I could think was, huh, I wonder what the severance pay is going to be for this one. I get the tears off of my eyes. I look up, and everybody's on their feet. They're just cheering. After all, what would you do if you saw someone who was lost for 90 years of their life and God invaded history to save their soul? It's a long time since then. I can't believe the Lord has done in my life what He's done. I have no reservations, no regrets. God has given me a greater life than I've ever deserved, all by His grace and His mercy. A godly wife, three godly children, a grandma who got saved, two brothers who got saved, a mother who got saved, and two sisters I'm praying for. So when people ask, you have any regrets? No. Our God is faithful. The question comes down to the power in your life. Who is Jesus to you? I tell you, He's the Son of God. God the Son, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Lord, may it be so today that if someone is watching in, listening in, or right here, that this day would be an eternal day, a day in which your voice showed up their ears were open, their hearts and minds were open, that they would say yes to Jesus, yes to His grace and mercy, yes to forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, yes to a new life that can only be found in Christ. And Lord, for we who are believers in here, it may be that there are those being called like I was called, whether to ministry or they had never been baptized with a believer's baptism after their salvation. Maybe it's a call to this church to serve, to lock arm in arm with believers right here in LaGrange to know that you are Lord and to glorify your name and your name alone. And maybe, Lord, someone just walked in here and they needed a touch from you. There's something so heavy, so hard on their life. No one knows but them. And they just needed a word from you today. May this word be a, a balm, an encouragement, a comfort, a joy to them today. That, Lord, during these sacred few moments, we do business with you, our Savior, our God, our friend, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me? In the solemn picture of the moment. Pastor Marty will be right here in the front. If you need to do business with the Lord, you can do business right here. You can do it right here at your seat, however he calls you to. Whether it's to join this church, be baptized, get called to ministry, be saved. If you just need a word or touch, maybe you just need to pray because you, like I, have lost loved ones and you've given up on them. Don't give up on them. As long as there's breath in the body, there's hope for the soul. Don't give up on them. Jesus isn't. Don't give up on them. Whatever the call. Praise the Lord today during this song. Your goodness is running after, it's running after.
your goodness cause your goodness is running after it's running after me cause your goodness is running after it's running after me in my life laid down surrendered now I give you everything your goodness is running after it's running after me remain standing for just a moment. Thank you so much for being here. Dr. Tanner, thank you for the word you've shared today. Can we express our gratitude to him? 